Okay, hello and good evening and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on the topic, do we have a right to health? My name is Kai Möller and, and I am a professor in the law school here at the LSE. Over a hundred national constitutions and various international treaties recognize a right to health, often defined as a claim to the highest attainable standard of health. So understood, several questions arise about this supposed right. Do people really have a claim on others to be helped to become as healthy as possible? And against whom might they have such a claim? Governments, corporations, international organizations. Can this right be made consistent with limits on the available resources for healthcare? And how should this right be balanced against other rights? I'm delighted to be joined by three experts tonight. Professor Octavio Ferraz teaches law at King's College London. His research interests are in the field of human rights and development, especially the role and impact of law and courts in poverty, equality, and social justice. He has published widely on the right to health and most prominently his, re his recent book, Health as a Human Right, the Politics and Judicialization of Health in Brazil. Dr. Carmen Pavel is Associate Professor in Political Economy at King's College London. Dr. Pavel specializes in political philosophy and the history of political thought. Her interests include international justice and international law, liberal theory, and contemporary challenges to it, and ethics and public policy. And she has published on the question of whether the right to health should be considered a human right. Professor Alex Vohuve is Professor of Philosophy and Head of Department at the LSE's Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method. He works in distributive justice, especially in healthcare, and he has proposed an interpretation of the right to health that makes it consistent with fair priority setting and has investigated its institutionalization in Latin America. There will be a chance for you, uh, both people in the room and the people who are joining us on Zoom to ask questions. And our plan tonight is not to wait until the very end, but rather to invite questions at several points throughout the session. So when that time comes, then if you're in the room, just raise your hand. And if you're on Zoom, then type the question into the chat. Uh, you're also invited to tweet about the event using the hashtag LSEforum. And finally, we're recording this event in order to produce a podcast afterwards. Our plan is to structure the evening in the following way. There will be three topics. First, we will explore the question of whether there exists a human right to health. Second, we will investigate if there is such a right, what its content might be. And third, we will look at the institutional question, what should the role of parliaments, governments, and courts be? with regard to the right to health. So off we go with the first topic, the does it, is there a right to health? And I would just want to kick this off by saying, it sounds like a great idea. Who could be against a right to health? It uh, would be similar to being against a right to beauty, a right to wealth, a right to happiness. It sounds almost too good to be true, perhaps. And as some people say, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So perhaps a right to health is just as unrealistic as a right to beauty or a right to wealth. And I want to invite Alex to make the case 
I think, in favor of the right to health. Yes. So thank you very much, Kai, and thank you for uh, joining us online and those who have joined us here uh, in person, and uh, especially to my colleagues who are, who are joining this evening. So I'm going to kick off by trying to make the case for there uh, being a human right to health. And uh, we should then start in trying to answer this question by defining human rights. So here's the definition I'd like to work with. That is that human rights are basic moral guarantees that every person at any time or place should have merely because they are a person. And to say that these guarantees take the form of rights means, firstly, that they give each person a claim on other agents to respect, protect, and fulfill these guarantees. In other words, other agents, and these can be other individuals, they can be states, or firms or international organizations have corresponding duties. Now, uh, this claim involved in a human right is also taken to have high priority. It means it's not easily outweighed and meeting it is mandatory for the agents who have the corresponding duties, unless even more pressing other moral reasons stand in the way of doing so. And calling these human rights guarantees that their existence does not depend on the existence of particular legal or institutional structures, but rather that they are a basis on which we can assess and demand the reform of such structures. So that's what human rights are, or what I take them to be. Do we have a human right to health? Now, to qualify as a human right, a potential right, a candidate right, must safeguard some fundamental universal interests against common threats. And it's often also taken that it's required that it must protect human dignity. Now, clearly health is among our most fundamental interests. Moreover, some key threats to health do undermine our dignity. So examples are being enrolled in a medical experiment without informed consent, or when we're left without access to basic necessities, such as uh, food, clean water, or breathable air, when it is readily possible to arrange matters so that we do have such access, or when our grave health needs are ignored, when it's possible to meet them without sacrificing others' more pressing needs. To be so used, as in the experimental case, or grossly neglected, are affronts to our dignity. So I take it, but in principle, a right to health meets these conditions of meeting fundamental interests and protecting us against affronts to our dignity. Nonetheless, there are some leading and indeed sensible thinkers like my colleague Carmen Pavel, who have argued that there is no human right to health. Now, why might this be so, given that it's so clear? <clears throat> One reason was already indicated by Kai in his introduction, which is that in international agreements, the right is characterized in, in a way that invites objections. So for example, in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, uh, this covenant recognizes the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. Now, of course, this is vague, right? What is the highest attainable standard? Uh, attainable, by whom and under which conditions. But 
even with all its vagueness, it suggests an overly demanding standard, one that in some parts of the world it will be impossible or too costly in terms of other things that we must pursue to achieve. Now, the World Health Organization has produced a clarification on the right to health, which I think does a bit better. It divides the human right to health into three parts, and it talks primarily about states' duties that correspond to this right to health, and it says these fall into three parts. First, that states especially must respect each person's claim to bodily integrity, to informed consent in the context of medicine, to not be harmed by pollution, and to access health services without discrimination. That's the respect part of the right. Second, states have an obligation to protect those rights that I've just articulated in the respect condition, right? Protect bodily integrity to make sure that informed consent is used in medical contexts to ensure there is no discrimination in access to health services. And the third part is to fulfill people's claims to firstly, the social and economic conditions that are adequate for health, that's tracking the social determinants of health. Secondly, that there be equitable access to public health interventions and medical care. And third, that people should be able to participate in health-related decision-making. So in a nutshell, the World Health Organization says the human right to health has three duties, places three duties on governments, respect, protect, fulfill. Now, of course, this protection and fulfillment element of the right to health require resources and require capable institutions, something that uh, Carmen points out in her work. Now, what does the WHO say about this? It says states must guarantee the right to health to the maximum of their available resources. Now, this, of course, recognizes constraints because it references available resources, but it again seems to repeat this overly demanding standard because maximum available seems to suggest that health must take priority over all kinds of other interests, like, for example, education or policing. So this objection is, in short, that it's overly demanding the way it's formulated. People do not have a claim to the highest attainable standard of health, nor to extensive health care. And in the poorest nations or nations with little state capacity, they do not even have a right to a decent minimum of health care. So the objection goes, because the primary duty holder, the state, is simply incapable of providing it. And if you can't do something, you're under no obligation to do it. Now, briefly, I want to say that we can meet this challenge if we take the fulfillment of the right to health to require not unlimited healthcare provision <clears throat> to everyone, but just reasonable policies to establish the social conditions for health and a reasonably resourced health system in which priorities are set fairly and accountably. This implies that there's no universal right to any particular health policy or the provision of any particular treatment, even if it's necessary for your survival. Instead, what there is a right to is there being a decently resourced system that takes everyone's health needs seriously, and that balances competing claims in an equitable manner. To make this concrete, let me end with two examples from South Africa. 
a country that recognizes the right to health in its constitution. In the early 2000s, the Treatment Action Campaign sued the government for not providing antiretrovirals, that's to say anti-HIV uh, medication, to pregnant mothers in order to stop mother-to-child transmission of HIV. In this suit, they alleged correctly that this was an extremely cost-effective treatment. That is, you got a lot of health for relatively low resource investment. And the government was ordered by the court to uh, not to provide this immediately because that was beyond its capabilities, but to implement and immediately produce a plan to implement a progressive provision of this treatment precisely because the court judged it to be unreasonable and inequitable to deny such an extremely urgent and cost-effective treatment to a large part of the population. On the other hand, the recognition of the right in the way that I suggest is perfectly compatible with the denial of even life-saving treatment when it's extremely expensive to do so and when there are stronger competing interests. So that in South Africa, again, a regional court denied access to uh, kidney dialysis to a person who was in need of it and who would die without it because they said other people had justifiably been given priority by the hospital over them. So in some, I think we can reconcile the notion of there being a right to health with resource constraints and capacity constraints if we understand it as a claim to a decently resourced system that set its priorities fairly. Then what about states who are too poor to even offer a decently resourced system? Well, there I think we must place the obligation that corresponds to the duty not on those states, but on others, on uh, richer states, on international organizations, on NGOs, on pharmaceutical companies, not merely for the relevant resources, but also for the policies, for example, around uh, intellectual uh, property rights that will enable those people whose states cannot provide the right to health for them uh, to have it realized either through international organizations or through stronger states. Thank you for that case in defense of the right, the human right to health. Carmen, over to you, and I expect some more critical words from yeah. you. Thank you. Thanks, Kai, and thanks, Alex. Uh, that's a very appealing conception of a human right to health, and I think we all recognize how important health is to our well-being and functioning and to taking advantage of opportunities in our societies. But let me make a... a a broader point by drawing on something that my son said to me about human rights recently, which is that he came home one of these unusually cold London winter days and went into his room and found his window open and the room very cold. And he came back to me and with a deadpan face said, um, who did this? Uh, it's very cold in my room. It's very unpleasant. I wanted to know this is a violation of my human rights. <laughs> And he said this in jest, of course, but I think it's very appealing 
to think of the things that are very good for us to have in general, like health, uh, like housing, like education, uh, like a clean environment as things that we have a right to. It's a very, there's a very strong case to be made that those that are the essential components of well-being are things that we should have a right to. But so there's a way to understand human rights that encompasses all of those things that are essential components of well-being. The problem with that conception of human rights is, uh, is primarily the problem that Alex already mentioned, which is it, it is too demanding. It means that we place on our communities and on the individuals that are part of that, those communities obligations to provide us with all of those essential elements of well-being. And, uh, and any society, no matter how well-resourced and how good their institutional capacities cannot provide uh, to everyone all of the elements that are good for a human life. And it's implausible to think that we have a right to all of those good things. So I wanna propose thinking about human rights in a different way. Human rights serve a particular function um, that does not require them to uh, provide access to everything that's uh, necessary for people to lead good lives, but as standards which protect individuals against uh, threats, against standard threats, and whose main role is to hold governments accountable for the ways in which they treat their own citizens. This is the main, and I would argue the most important function of a human right. And they are typically a standard of international law and international practice that enables us to assess and react when governments fall below a certain level of um, treatment with respect to their citizens. And I would say that a human right to health or healthcare services doesn't allow us to do that. It doesn't serve, it cannot serve that function for us precisely because it is so dependent on each community's ability to provide healthcare services. There's gonna be a wide variation among communities and how they prioritize the needs of their citizens and what kinds of health issues that they confront um, and, and how they balance those against other priorities that they face in their communities, such as infrastructure or education or um, sanitation uh, or housing, access to uh, food and so on. And so mainly because a human right to health cannot tell us whether governments are doing a good job or not. And satisfying their citizens' healthcare need, I don't think it gets served the function that human rights, we want human rights typically to serve. Thank you. Um, well, I could ask questions unless you want to respond to each, uh, Alex, maybe you want to come back and defend your point or Octavio, you want to come in if you have something, you look as if yeah, you have I something could, to I could say, say, say something, because I think that I, I probably stand in between 
So maybe uh, <clears throat> it, it would be uh, useful for me to say a few uh, words, but um, I wanted to start also with an anecdote by my son that uh, 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 Carmen's uh, story there reminded me of. Well, we, we were walking in London, I can't remember what context, and he was desperate for the loo. And knowing that I'm a human rights professor, he joked like, a toilet should be a human right. There should be a human right to a toilet, right? And then I thought about it and I said, yes, I think you're right. There should be a human right to a toilet. <laughs> and a toilet is not beauty. It's not happiness. It's not like the highest attainable standard of health. It's something really basic, right? That we probably uh, should include uh, in, in, in the human rights corpus uh, if, you, if you want. But... Uh, I, I think, uh, as I said to Carmen in the beginning here, before we started, uh, I don't go through that question with my students when we do the human rights course, because of what Kai mentioned in the beginning, 100 constitutions have already recognized the right to health. Some statistics uh, even say more, two thirds of the world constitutions. There is the international treaty at the UN recognizing the right to health. There are lots of regional treaties uh, in uh, America, in Africa, recognizing that there is a right to health. So should we not move straight to, to the question of what should we do to implement that right, effectiveness, rather than discuss philosophically whether there is a right to health or not, which is incidentally what a very famous political scientist from Italy, Norberto Bobbio, said in the 90s in a book called The Age of Rights. He said, look, all this debate about whether something is a human right or not is past now, given that there is so much recognition of all these rights in the international system, regional systems, we should now focus on the question of implementation. Let's get these rights to people, like let's make them real. But I disagree with Bob when I think that Carmen's uh, question, and I say that to my students, some of whom are there, uh, is actually important because the legal recognition of a right doesn't make them necessarily stable and effective if there is still a lot of debate about whether they are human rights or not, the philosophical debate. So to give the example of the right to health, the United States of America, one of the most important countries in the world by some standards, has never ratified the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, partly because they don't believe that there are rights like the, the right to health. So I think the question is really important. And I think your challenge is also pertinent. And that I think we agree, we all agree here that that right cannot be a right to the highest level of health available in the best resourced hospital in New York, for instance, <laughs> right? Uh, only a few people will be able to access that. It cannot be generalized. So I think that uh, condition of for something to be a universal right that everyone should be capable of having access to that uh, in principle, obviously like inequalities of resources across the world might prevent people from achieving similar standards, but it has to be at least in principle possible, right? If the wealth of the world was divided equally, then that's the highest level that you can have a right to, right? So if it's much higher than even that, then I think I agree with you. It makes no sense to call something a right, which that's not even in principle, uh, the uh, capacity in the world to provide for everyone. 
But that's where I think I start to disagree with you because you you, you go against the basic minimum mm. as well, saying that even the basic minimum, it would be impossible to provide to everyone. But I think that is contingent on the way you define the basic minimum, which is based on interests of survival, for instance. So we can always spend more resources to keep people alive. And I, I, the example that uh, Alex gave that Sometimes you cannot even do that because it's too expensive, right? Then that would be like the conflict, I think, between your position and, and his. But I think if you define the basic minimum as equal access to a basic minimum of resources in health that uh, exists in the world, so not something that absurd as, as, as you're claiming, in our paper, then I think it's it's possible to to think of that right as a feasible uh, right that everyone should have, and the world is rich enough today. So I, I, I checked again that GDP world GDP per capita today is about sixteen U.S. dollars, which is more than a thousand dollars a month. So if it was equally divided, then more than forty four dollars a day for each person living in this world, it is possible within those resources to provide a basic minimum of health, like primary health care, basic sanitation to everyone in the world. So it's not completely absurd to think of a world, including like international obligations that uh, uh, Alex said, and the COVID-19 pandemic now has brought to the uh, front of the debate, the vaccination, for instance, these vaccines are not that expensive, right? Uh, maybe $10, like you, you could vaccinate the whole world like easily with the resources that exist in the world. But, but that would imply a conception of global justice in which other countries have a duty, like richer countries, which is not a consensus, right? But even without that conception, even if we only take into account the resources that exist within uh, a certain country, and, and I, I finish here, I, I, I promise, I think it's still plausible to say that Mozambique, for instance, whose GDP per capita is $1,300. So has a duty to provide to their own inhabitants a basic minimum within those resources. Mm. And that would include much less than in Sweden, in the UK. But I don't think it's conceptually uh, implausible to say that this is still a universal right that is relatively universal. I, I use that here, the conception of Jack Donnelly. Uh, and, and an example from the civil and political rights uh, field will help us understand that. Because if your argument uh, was, was, was correct, that variation among countries would preclude us from calling something a human right, that would apply to any right, mm. including, for instance, to finish the right to freedom of expression. In Germany, Kai will correct me if I'm mistaken, you cannot deny the Holocaust. That's a crime, section 130 of the Strafrecht uh, criminal code. Whereas in the US, the first amendment as interpreted by the courts allow you to do that and even more to do hate speech. Does that mean that freedom of expression cannot be a universal right because different countries will have different understandings or uh, that right will be, uh, the content of the right will be different in different countries? I don't think so. I think that there is the, the, the core of the idea of human dignity, equality that we all share as, as, as a humanity. 
And then different countries will implement and interpret this idea in a diff in different manner within a reasonable mm. scope. Like so, your your example that denying completely that someone has that right and not investing any resources on health, for instance, even in Mozambique, I think it would be uh, a violation of of the right to health. But the fact that Mozambique cannot give the same as UK or Sweden is not necessarily a impediment to call something a human right. So back to you, yes. I was going to briefly respond. And I'd like to hear something about the basic minimum also. Yes, Is yeah, that the solution to the problem? Perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, again, that's a very um, appealing way to think about the human rights. Okay, so let's not say that what you have a right to is the highest attainable level of physical and mental health, like the international covenant claims that we do, which is not even a reasonable policy goal, let alone a human right, but you have uh, access to something like um, a basic minimum, yeah? Depending on how, um, so I still worry that there's no way to specify the basic minimum that's going to be accessible to uh, the range of countries that we have and the capacity, institutional capacities that they have. Because, partly because, uh, it's not just a matter of shifting money around. So it sounds like when you just look at financial resources, it's like, it sounds like there's enough there to satisfy some basic healthcare needs. But in reality, providing, protecting people's health, providing health services to improve their health doesn't just require financial resources. It requires a whole infrastructure of services that some countries are just simply unable to provide or they're not able to provide uh, for even the basic minimum. So think about what a healthcare system requires. It requires facilities like hospital that are endowed with technology and medicine. It requires training for medical professionals. Um, it requires sophisticated nowadays um, uh, computing technologies to keep track of of treatments and uh, and uh, various specialists of, of, of this sort. And uh, for various historical institutional reasons, some countries are not able to even sustain long-term the institutional elements that make up a, a healthcare system that can provide a basic minimum. So those countries, even uh, with the willingness to do something about their citizens' health would not be able to provide the basic minimum and therefore would be violating a human right to health without doing anything wrong. I don't think we want a conception of human rights that it makes it both compulsory for governments to provide things that they're not able to um, and, and, and makes it wrong when, when they're not able to. Um, uh, which doesn't mean that governments shouldn't pay attention to and respond to the, their citizens' healthcare needs and health needs. I think, I think it's a really important uh, policy priority. It should be an important policy priority for mo most governments, all governments, precisely because, as you say, Octavia, there's so, there's so much low-hanging fruit where there are treatments available at a low cost that can reduce infant mortality uh, and improve health outcomes over a range of chronic and um, terminal diseases. 
But those, we don't need to think about those uh, projects of improving health that governments do in terms of human rights. We can think of those in terms of uh, providing equal opportunities for, uh, for access to, um, um, uh, say, employment um, options or uh, for reducing the burden of disease in a particular country or for reducing the impact of disability or of chronic illnesses on uh, the capacity of individuals to live a good life, on minimizing the amount of suffering that individuals are exposed to because of health challenges. So we already have in our vocabulary a number of, of goals that governments can um, use to set healthcare priorities. And on the basis of those goals uh, is, is um, comes setting the rights that come uh, attached to individuals who then will have access to specific resources. And that will depend, of course, on what else is going on in terms of budget uh, priorities for other important public services, uh, things like public education, roads, and so on. Um, so I think it would be great if we can even guarantee a basic minimum. I just don't see how even a core we can identify a core concept of a human right to health that can perform that function for us. Thank you. So what I notice is we're already talking about the content and mm -hmm. the question of the existence of a right, a human right to health is not really totally separable from the question of its content. Um, but I think it is perhaps a good moment to invite questions from in the chat. people in the room and the people on Zoom Anyone in the room who has a question? If you would press this button while, while you speak. Okay. Uh, yeah, just yes. Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, my question is for, for Alex. Um, you mentioned that in a situation where a country doesn't have the resources to uh, even maintain a, a, a threshold minimum level of uh, services, the obligation then falls on the international community, uh, other states, uh, NGOs, in a situation like that, are, are we talking about a right that the, the citizens of that country have a right? And if so, how do you how do you define that right? Is is it who is that right towards? Um, I'm just a little bit unsure, or I don't maybe understand uh, what it means that that is a right. I, I'm not sure if there could be any avenue of enforcing that right. So, yeah, if you could maybe just describe how you envision that working. Yeah, very good. So firstly, I'll just clarify that even a very poorly resourced state, I think, has obligations under the right to health as I've proposed it, right, which is basically to say, <clears throat> you have a right to an adequately or reasonably resourced health system that sets its priorities uh, in a reasonable and fair and equitable manner. Even with very small amounts of resources, supposing even you don't build any hospitals at all, you can provide some very cheap basic interventions that can go a long way in public health, right? Bed nets for malaria, uh, vaccinations, for example. Uh, these can reach even very poor and unstable states. And insofar as it's within the capacity of a state with its limited resources to do so, it has an obligation under the right to health, in my view, to do so. So one of the obligation holders remains even a weak and poorly resourced state, so long as it has some capacity. 
But there's no reason to stop there in terms of uh, saying who who else has an obligation. So I think uh, international uh, organizations can have an obligation, right? Like the World Health Organization, um, large do potential donors, international donors can have such an obligation. And there have been large investments, for example, in starting in the uh, late 1990s through to the present in malaria prevention, financed largely from abroad, which has had remarkable apparent impacts on malaria deaths. They've roughly halved by some indications around the world. Um, that wasn't primarily due to those governments, but rather, I would say, the recognition of an obligation among richer nations and some very rich individuals to um, put money to meet people's human rights claims. And similarly, I would say that governments, when they're negotiating international agreements, for example, on intellectual property rights, each of them has an obligation to ensure that those agreements are such that they don't stand in the way of meeting the human right to health of the poorest, which would, again, for example, require exemptions to uh, in emergencies, right, to ordinary property rights that people have in their patents. So there's plenty of obligation holders, I think, duty holders, and I think even relatively well-off individuals should regard part of their personal giving as not merely something nice or generous, but as something which we are required to do in order to do our bit to meet other people's rights. See, one of the reasons why I like speaking of this in terms of a human right to health is that it gives, it recognizes, so to speak, the claim of every person everywhere in the world on their states, and on other agents. It's not merely something nice that we could do for them to improve their health, but rather something we have an obligation to do. And if it's something that we can only really all do together, then we have our ob an obligation to do our bit. That's how I would see the obligation. Thank you. Paloma, do you want to read out a question from the chat? Uh, yes, so I think there is one question for uh, Carmen that relates really well to the previous question. Um, well, I can read it out entirely. Um, so the human right to health um, case brought by the TAC in um, South Africa most certainly does represent an example of citizens holding their governments accountable for um, falling below a certain level when standards, um, well, when they fail to meet certain standards of uh, treating their citizens. And um, basically this question is asking, what would be the, the replacement if, if we lack rights as, as a tool to hold the, the government um, accountable? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, think, I think the main reason this was possible in um, South Africa, and Octavio has done a lot of work on um, um, constitutional guarantees for, human, for a human right to health in Latin America as well, is because, it's precisely because it becomes either a constitutional right or somehow embedded in national legislation as a right that individuals then can hold governments accountable to. I think that's a better way to conceive of a right to health. It's something that communities decide together to specify in light of their competing priorities, 
And then there are government agencies that have particular duties to provide access to services in a non-discriminatory fashion. Whether that's a constitutional right, should be a constitutional right or not, I think it's a it's a more difficult question, but certainly because in South Africa it was a constitutional right, then it made sense to hold the government accountable uh, for failing to perform uh, its duty. Um, it's 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 a very complicated kind of constitutional right, uh, I think. Um, but uh, but we don't need a, a, a conception of human right to have uh, that uh, local accountability for governments if we have the legally specified rights in either in the constitution or in other um, uh, form of uh, legislative protection. Thank you. Okay, I think we will now formally move on to the second block, although we're already discussing questions relating to that second block, namely what would the content of the right to health, if it existed, uh, be. And there are a few ideas floating around um, in that discussion, and some have come up here already. So one is that the right to health means that everyone has the right to the highest attainable standard of health. So if you need a very expensive um, treatment for your very rare disease, then you have a right to be provided with that treatment. That would be one possibility. Another idea that's come up uh, is that you have a right to minimum call, so only to some, well, minimum, however we define that minimum. The third idea that uh, Alex mentioned um, is you have a right to something like a reasonable uh, specification and reasonable allocation of resources towards healthcare, which seems to me to be, well, no, I won't say anything about it. I, no, you I, can't, I, I go ahead. Don't bite your tongue. Okay. <laughs> it seems to me, to that idea seems to me to sit quite well with how we often think about human rights in general, because uh, the way I, as a constitutional rights lawyer and human rights lawyer, think about human rights is they're usually not absolute. They usually can be limited. And the test that courts use to limit them is proportionality or to assess whether a limitation is acceptable. And proportionality, in my view, is something like a reasonableness standard. It asks, are there good enough reasons for this limitation of the right? So that applies to almost all rights, with the exception of absolute rights, such as freedom from torture. There, we don't make any exceptions. But with regard to all other rights, Indeed, I think quite often we use a reasonableness standard. So that idea that you proposed would sit quite well with what we already do in human rights or constitutional rights. And that's, that strikes me as an advantage. I'm glad I invited you to keep talking because uh, I was afraid I was going to get a telling off from the constitutional lawyer. <laughs> oh, not in the least, as you see. Do you? Yeah, since, I've, since there's no disagreement, I think we have to ask our other two panelists uh, Octavio, maybe I was also wondering if you could say something about the experience in Brazil. Or yes. Uh, so, firstly, I don't think that the 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 last two ways of formulating the content of the right to health are incompatible. So, the minimum core and the reasonableness approach. I'm totally against the highest standard, but even the formulation of Article 12 of the International Covenant is not that the highest standard available anywhere in the world. So I think that it might be unfortunate, the language, but the article itself says the highest attainable 
and attainable where? Within the context of available resources. So that brings it down. So when you say highest, then immediately the mind thinks whatever is out there in the market, but that's not plausible. And it's not even what a literal interpretation of the covenant would lead to. So I think that's a, a, a mistaken interpretation. But the other two, which I think are the best candidates, minimum core and reasonableness, I think they can be combined. I don't think the minimum core is best understood at this absolute minimum that would be the same mm. everywhere and everyone has a right to that. And you predefine that and then you say everyone has a right to that. I think it's from the beginning of reasonableness analysis involving limited resources. So what would be reasonable to provide to everyone the egalitarian and universal aspect within those available resources? So you start from there and that sets the, the minimum. So the minimum is misleading because the minimum can be low or high. The minimum in Mozambique will be very low. The minimum in Sweden, in the UK, might be very high. Uh, because it's reasonable that in a rich society like Sweden, people have access to MRI scans when they like have an accident and uh, injury their heads, whereas in Mozambique, it, it, it isn't. So if the variation is a problem for there being a human rights, then that's another question, but you don't need to conceptualize it in a way that the minimum is the same everywhere. The minimum can be contingent what uh, resources that country has. Now, in terms of formulation, just use the Brazilian example. I, I, I think that the highest attainable language, despite the misinterpretation, is perhaps unfortunate because it, it might lead to that misinterpretation. The Brazilian constitution, which didn't look at the international documents like the South African, for instance, did to formulate the right to health, I think formulated it in a really uh, useful way that could be used as, as the model. So Article 196 of the Brazilian Constitution says, health is a right of everyone and a duty of the state, guaranteed by social economic policies that aim at reducing the risk of illnesses and other health hazards. So reducing the risk, not eliminating the risks, not giving the highest attainable level, and universal and egalitarian access to actions and services for its promotion, protection, and recovery. So when you say universal and egalitarian, you're already saying that it has to be the same for everyone, and therefore it cannot be the highest, right? It has to be uh, a minimum, but that will depend again on the wealth of the country. Brazil is a upper middle income country, and it is capable of offering a decent amount of a secondary and tertiary care in hospitals, but not the highest level available in private hospitals like to, to, to everyone. So I think perhaps that language, uh, the, the formulation in, in, in the international uh, treaty is not overly demanding if you understand it correctly, but it can lead to this over demanding idea that I think we all agree here is not a good interpretation of the content of the right to health or any right for the, that matter. Octavio, if, if Brazil is such a model on, on your view, why is it that uh, it's also a model for problems in the recognition of the right to health, at least as I understand both from your own work 
and uh, the work of Daniel Wang, uh, someone who studied here at LSE and now works in Brazil, and also a former student of yours. Uh, he finds that uh, courts uh, at several points in uh, history in Brazil, if I understand it correctly, granted all kinds of uh, treatments implicitly in applying this highest attainable standard. So someone could claim the most expensive cancer treatment delivered to them in Florida and plane tickets because uh, under the right to health, and this was granted by the Brazilian Supreme Court, right? Mm -hmm. Similarly, courts in um, Costa Rica have granted uh, extremely expensive medication to individuals who needed it. Um, uh, again, way out of proportion to what would be a reasonable use of resources in the country. Again, saying, look, where rights are concerned, so the court said where rights are concerned, uh, economics doesn't matter. So if it's true, as you say, that the, the international uh, treaty on which the Costa Rican court relied is clear or can be uh, literally read as not demanding this highest attainable standard, and if, it's, if the Brazilian constitution is such a model, why does it go wrong in practice? Okay, so <clears throat> Brazil is both a positive and a negative model. And those who know my work, like you do, like uh, maybe some people who are uh, participating as well will know that I've been a, a fierce uh, critic, critic of the, the, the way courts interpret the right to health. So I was reading out here for you, Article 196 of the Constitution, which got in there through the work of public health professionals, civil society movements, politicians. And I actually did the research for my book, which is called The Politics and Judicialization of Health. And there were no lawyers involved in formulating <laughs> that, that article, right? Which I think is a That's positive That's why it's model. so good. <laughs> when you bring the lawyers in and they start interpreting it, then you might have that problem. So South African, <laughs> the South African court, I see as a, as a good example. And they have similar formulation uh, in, in their constitution with the added clause that there they make explicitly, explicit that this right is contingent on available resources. They don't do it here, but you don't need to, right? Because this is just a fact of the world that resources are not unlimited. So the negative model that Brazil and other Latin American countries provide is the judicial interpretation of the right to health. Uh, so you have to distinguish between the politics and the judicialization of health, as I try to do in my book. But then a final comment, if, if I may, many people misinterpreted me as saying that because judicialization is negative, then the right to health doesn't make sense, so we should take it out of the Constitution. Or No, I think that even with judges interpreting it in that inappropriate manner, it's still overall positive because what the right to health can do when it's in the Constitution or in the international level, so that's perhaps a point of disagreement between me and Carmen, is leverage political action to extend access to health for the population. So one question maybe that I, I would put to you, if Brazil hadn't adopted the right, because you say it's a good thing, right, for South Africa, Brazil, to put those rights in the constitution, that's a, a, something you are happy with. But if it wasn't there, or before 1988, 
you are claiming that there was no potential argument based on the human right to health, and these people used it to get it into the constitution to say that we should have it, mm. right? In, in your argument, like if Brazil has or has not, depends on the internal politics, and no one can criticize based on an international human right to health if it hasn't. The same with the US today. The US doesn't have that, right? But people criticize it based on the human right to health, universal human right to health. So I think you lose uh, this really important, significant instrument of political pressure uh, for something that we all agree would be good for countries to have, right? Decent countries to provide health to their population if you don't use the idea of a, a human right to health. I, I, it's a good question. What kind of purpose does the constitutional rights serve? And I don't know that I have a good answer to that. Uh, but it seems to me that if we agree, and I think it seems that we, in very large part, we agree that whatever healthcare services have to be reasonable and have to respect uh, a range of, say, budgetary priorities and health concerns in the population that is considered, and the needs are going to be different in different parts of the world. Some populations are uh, aging more rapidly and others have high rates of infant mortality or HIV uh, uh, infections and so on. Um, so it seems that if, if we're saying that these priorities should be set by hopefully legitimate democratic processes that confront these requests in a, uh, in a, in a manner in which they're willing to uh, consider health intervention alongside other priorities. It's just not clear to me what a human right to health adds to that. I just don't think we need that. It seems that you think it does some work. But even the, the, I think part of the problem why courts may take such a, an activist role in Brazil is, is partly because the constitutional language, it sounds to me, though you're, uh, uh, you know, we have experts here that might disagree, doesn't give much guidance either to the government about what obligations it has, just says reduce the incidence of whatever negative health outcomes and, and do that in an equitable manner, we, we can get that from, uh, you know, principles of non-discrimination that are constitutional norms. Um, and we can, uh, so I don't, I don't actually see what that adds other than uh, allowing, because it's so vague in the constitution, a very activist judicial uh, body to then override the uh, decisions of a, say a uh, representative legislative body on how to set priorities because if it turns out that indeed they they will um, uh, admit claims in the form of, of human rights to health that are they are unreasonable um, it's because the constitutional right has sort of maybe not specified in the right way has given them the authority the authority to do that what I would prefer is to think of rights to health as coming out of direct policy goals that again, democratic communities might set internally and then the rights are attached to those goals. So just in the same way as you might have um, 
a right to say postal services because uh, government says that it will guarantee access to postal services for every citizen. Um, and then you have a claim against the government when you don't have access to those services. I think that we should think of rights to healthcare in the same way. I think we're putting the cart before the horse if we start with the healthcare right. I think we should start with the policy goal and find reasonable ways of attaining that given available resources. And after that, define the right in relation to that policy goal. So that means that the rights are going to be a lot more uh, uh, narrowly defined, a lot more specific, and it will give courts the ability to hold governments accountable without allowing the courts the ability to override um, uh, budgetary priorities. Thank you, it's great. We're almost always naturally moving on to the next topic that I was going to raise, in this case, courts and institutions. But before we can formally do that, again, I'd like to invite questions from the audience here. Anyone has a question? Or, and the audience on Zoom. Paloma, is there anything suitable for us? I mean, there have been some questions about the metric that would be used um, for for the right to health, and um, there were more for the past sections. So maybe we should just because we're kind of we've begun our discussion relating to institutions already. So maybe we should should just move into that area, and then there'll be further opportunity for questions. Um, so as a lawyer, my first question would always be, what role should the courts have in all of this? And that's what we've begun to talk about. Courts, especially vis-a-vis -vis the legislature. So there's an old and now somewhat dated view according to which uh, the legislature makes its decision decisions based on essentially something like utilitarianism. And then the courts come in to protect our rights. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if we take this perspective, then the whole point of creating a, a right to health would be, well, to give it to the courts and remove it from the legislature. But I think that that view is a little bit dated now and it's widely acknowledged that legislatures too have the job of caring and, about our rights and protecting and our rights and giving effect to our rights. And if that is so, then what should the role of courts be? That's that's the question that, that I would want to know as a lawyer. But we could also ask, what should the role of the of government agencies be with regard to the right to health vis-a-vis -vis the legislature, for example? So we could put it in this way: to what extent should we be governed by people who are experts? And to what extent should we be governed by people who are democratically elected? I just want to invite contributions to this and not give you. Very specific questions, Alex. I'm happy to kick off as the person least qualified in this company to, to say it. Philosophers are always very opinionful, as uh, Robert Nozick uh, once put it. Mm. Not opinionated because we're happy to change our mind, but full of opinions. So here's, here's where I'd like to kick off on this one. Um, I think the, the understanding of the human right to health that I've proposed to you would put a very substantial burden and also put a lot of power with uh, a democratic legislature and government because within a wide range, reasonable, there's, there's uh, as you also indicate in your work, Kai, there's, there's you know, reasonable disagreement. 
There's different ways of setting priorities that are reasonable. One is to give a lot to education and relatively less to health and the other the other way around, although there are clear boundaries. Mm. Right? And the South African case I indicated was one in which uh, it was beyond the pale that something wasn't being provided in healthcare. So I think it's it's a vague concept, but it's it does provide clear boundaries. Within those boundaries, my thought, my first thought would be we should leave it to a democratic and open procedure to set priorities, so long as they're done in a non-discriminatory, equitable manner, as the Brazilian constitution also requires. So I think, but then the further question is, should, say, the legislature be, be deciding on very specific interventions? Like in the United States, if I recall correctly, uh, when dialysis became available for the first time, soon thereafter, there was a specific fund for dialysis, mm. and you can still apply to that. Um, that, I think, is too specific. Right? That's politics being cut up, uh, caught up in you know, uh, uh, one lobby group or an identifiable group of, of victims. I think my own sense is what, uh, what the, our representatives, democratic representatives, should do is formulate some broad principles for how to set priorities, give those principles to a expert body, a health technology agency, as, it, as they're often called. And that agency should then provide guidance, which is normally implemented, unless, of course, there, are, there may be special reasons to depart from it. And then what the court should do is check that those principles are reasonable, non-discriminatory, and that they're being you know, properly implemented in a way that also allows people to hold the government to account for you know, implementing them and that the basis of these decisions is made public. So I see that, that being the division of labor between democratic decision makers, experts, and the courts. Thank you. So, yeah. I, I think I don't, I agree with everything and we have actually co collaborated uh, in, in the past, so I, we, we know that we are, we are both in favor of, of that kind of division of labor between these three institutions. So I'll play the devil's advocate here now. So imagine that uh, there is someone like the renal dialysis guy in South Africa who goes to court and says, look, I know that parliament decided that the budget for health would be X. And then the health technology agency said, we are only going to give this to people who uh, comply with a certain criteria, say someone who can then go on to do a transplant rather than rely on renal dialysis for the rest of their lives because it's too expensive, but I'm dying. And if there is a right to health, which is in the constitution, I should have it. You should order the state to uh, provide it to me. I think we both agree that the decision of the South African court in that case was correct. It actually denied the claim and said, it's not for us to decide because it has been decided by the appropriate institutions. If there was discrimination or some another uh, inappropriate uh, procedural flaw in the way that that was decided, we might intervene. But in this case, bad luck. Like, the decision has been taken, it's not for us to, to, to take it. 
lots of human rights lawyers, constitutional lawyers, see that decision as wrong because they deny the right to health of that is there in, in, in the constitution. So I suppose I, I suspect that more people might also have that kind of feeling that how come like that the right to so I, I think that would be in favor of Carmen's argument that if this is all the right to health is, we don't need that. This is the right to no discrimination. This is the right to transparency. This is the right to reasonableness in administrative law. So what does the right to health add to that? I thought you were on my side. I am. <laughs> I have a good answer for that, but maybe uh, Carmen could like push further there. With co-authors yeah. like you, who needs enemies? <laughs> I um, yeah. I mean, I I also I'm in agreement with uh, with the two of you on this. I, I think there's very little for us to disagree here. This is yeah. why I think we should think of the right to health as a legal conventional right that's much more specific to uh, sort of different communities and how they prioritize their uh, health healthcare services than as a human right. Um, but they can do so, and I, so I think primarily it is going to be a democratically elected legislator that's going to specify some of the ways. And But I think it will be acceptable for them to be very specific in some instances if that particular community has um, uh, a disease burden that requires that one type of treatment, say, be prioritized. So in the United States, uh, uh, a renal failure is in the top 10 causes of death, okay? So one might say that because it's, uh, it characterizes um, the, the threats to health of a population that maybe has a higher rate of obesity and heart disease and other conditions, that it can, it, you know, the, it wouldn't be unreasonable for a legislator to specify a special fund for um, um, for, uh, for dialysis. Um, but there's also a question of how, I think there's a question of if you wanna provide a more general right of access to a range of healthcare services, as you would for say, people who uh, might be uh, through no fault of their own in no financial position to obtain their own healthcare services. So say I have a program like uh, like Medicaid or Medicare in the US, either you provide services for people over a certain age or for people uh, below a certain income, then you have to empower then a government agency to make those decisions, that allocative decisions, because uh, healthcare needs are unlimited. New technologies are created all the time and they can produce uh, very incremental uh, uh, improvements in uh, one's health at astronomical costs. So it cannot be the case that you have a right to everything that improves your health and rationing is inevitable in any healthcare system. And so if you empower an agency to make those decisions, it doesn't mean that people are gonna be denied. Uh, but as long as I think those decisions are equitable, transparent. Um, I think I think that's uh, that's uh, it's an acceptable way of uh, treating people equitably. Last opportunity for questions from the audience. You're in the room. Anyone? Yes. Please. Yes. Press the button. Well, I think I 
So, so I quite agree with you. I mean, your first question, I didn't mean that the right to health is up for democratic debate. I was proposed defending it as a universal human right. Rather, what I was proposing was that what you have, the specific things that you have a right to can in part within a substantial leeway be determined in a democratic process, so long as this democratic process involves decent consideration of people's competing interests. Now, it's true that this can often go awry, and that's one good place where courts can come in. So make it vivid, an example from Costa Rica, if I remember correctly, it's the very first time that the Costa Rican court got involved, or one of the first times, was in the 1990s when antiretroviral treatment became available, and the expert body in Costa Rica that determines what people have access to uh, turned it down. And then courts overturned that decision in part because they thought it didn't give due weight to the interests of what is, of course, typically a marginalized group, which was uh, gay people. Right? So it's precisely that type of reasoning that I think courts are very good at. They're good at spotting discrimination, democratic polities, and also panels of experts which are drawn from their own bubble and, of course, reflect societal prejudice may not always be so free from discrimination. And courts provide a, a, a place for people to challenge and also change public perception by having it be such a public challenge. Right? So that's an example in which I think uh, the, both the experts and, so to speak, the democratic decision-making was correctly overridden by the courts. But it's not always correct to override it. My thought is there should be deference whenever the decision-making is broadly reasonable. Thank you. Uh, really good questions I can see in the chat about human rights as guidelines rather than binding and about the idea of personal responsibility. It is a pity, though, that we are out of time. And so we'll have to discuss those questions with you some other time. Um, I think we have addressed some of the important, difficult and controversial questions relating to the right to health. And I would like to thank our speakers very much, Octavio Ferraz, Alex Verhoeven, and Carmen Pavel for 
discussing these issues with us. Thank you also very much to the audience who came to came here to this room. It's so nice to have in-person events again. And also thank you very much to those who joined us on Zoom. And I hope to see you all again very soon for a similar, similarly interesting and exciting event. Thank you all very much and good night. <laughs>